Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. As we gather around the technology campfire and tell our stories, one of the stories we hope we never have to tell is one of losing a child. Of all the fears and tragedies, this one ranks in the top heartbreaks. Today, my interview with Chris Jones is a discussion about his son, Mitchell, who passed away from heart failure in 2013, and the Facebook page titled Mitchell's Journey that has gained international attention as a place for healing and gaining understanding of the process of grieving. Mitchell's journey has become a hope for many, and his father speaks and shares insights on finding purpose, meaning, and joy despite the difficulties we face. He talks about how gratitude is a great healer and how broken things mend eventually. Stay tuned for Mitchell's story, Chris's story, and some raw discussion on facing one of the hardest storylines possible. Stories are our lives and language. Welcome to the Love Your Story podcast. I'm Lori Lee, and I'm excited for our future together of telling stories, evaluating our own stories, and lifting ourselves and others to greater places because of our control over our stories. This podcast is about empowerment and giving you the listener, ideas to work with and making your stories work for you. Story power serves you best when you know how to use it. Vicki Harrison said, quote, grief is like the ocean. It comes in waves, ebbing and flowing. Sometimes the water is calm and sometimes it is overwhelming. All we can do is learn to swim, unquote. Chris, I'm excited to have you on the Love Your Story podcast. Welcome. Let's start. Can you share your story of swimming? Who are you and who is Mitchell? So my name is Chris Jones. Um, I'm the father of four kids. And uh, my wife and I got married uh, in, in the mid-90s. And I, I really just fell in love with her. It was one of those classical uh, Utah love stories where we dated about a week and then got married the next month. <laughs> those are good ones. Not quite that close, but but it was a quick, you know, we fell in love quickly. We, we never went to movies or anything when we were dating. We just sat and talked. And, and I think that really accelerated our connection. And we shared each other's stories. And we found that, man, I just really loved her. And she felt the same way. And so we got married and, and uh, we started a family fairly, very quickly. And uh, our third son, Mitchell, was, uh, was born just a few years into our marriage. And he had a genetic disease called Duchenne muscular dystrophy, which is a catastrophic muscle wasting disease. And uh, it's 100% fatal. And, uh, and, and the diagnosis didn't really occur until about the age of three, although he had it the moment he was born. Uh, we didn't realize he had it until he was about the age of three. And, uh, you know, thus began this journey of, of grief, but we just, we began to deal with anticipatory grief. We struggled with, you know, what was to come and all the heartache of, of anticipating a really hard future. What did that look like for Mitchell? How did he handle that? What was his approach? Well, you know, he was tiny. So at the age of three, he just, he had no idea what, what, what it was. And, and so we slowly had to eat that information to him as he got a little older and we would just share age-appropriate information. But even at a very young age, by the age of seven and eight, he had already figured out that he wasn't going to live a long life. And uh, which, which ironically, when Mitchell was first born, I remember um, 
having a really strong feeling. He came out, you know, just healthy. It seemed everything was normal, but I had this distinct feeling that something was really wrong with my boy. Um, and, uh, and then just a few years later, of course, we, we discovered that in the diagnosis. I think Mitch had something similar, that he had a sense that something wasn't right in his body, even though uh, we didn't tell him how serious it was until he was a little older. Uh, he just always knows and carries something. And how, how did he, as a young child, then um, digest that and, and communicate with you his feelings about it? Well, I think if part of a young child, right, they don't want to deal with terribly hard things. So they kind of put it on the shelf and deal with it later. And so, you know, he knew he, he had something that would end up taking his life, but he tried to just focus on the more positive aspects, the things he, he really understood gr- uh, gratitude. And he, he was grateful for all that he did have in his life. What do you remember most about him? What was he like? Boy, Mitch was was the sweetest little little boy. Uh, he loved his mom. He had this docile, caring uh, personality. He was pretty shy around people, but once you kind of got to know him and he learned to trust you, he would open up the most beautiful parts of him to you. And, you know, he would just, he would talk and say the cutest, most insightful things, things that we didn't hear our other kids talking about. He just seemed to have a level of introspection and, and insight that was just a little uncanny, a little a little beyond his age. And, and, and that was really fun. And, you know, just listening to the things he would say one, one time, Natalie was driving in the car to go to something and Mitchell looked out the window and he saw a big billboard that said homes for uh, 124 and up. And he said to his mom, he goes, mom, I can afford a house. Maybe I should get a house like next week or something like that. And she just giggled and she says, no, that's a hundred $20,000, you know, not, not $120. And he just kind of closed his eyes and said, oh, darn it. You know, he really loved independence and uh, really treasured, you know, opportunities to, to save and earn things in his life. And I think that, that was a, another really cute aspect. Of he sounds darling. What was, what was the journey like then as you followed these next years through his illness? And what ways did you find to cope with what was going on, especially with this? You know, so many times the things that we grieve over the fear, the sadness comes from what we know or think is going to happen, not what is actually happening. And in this case, you alluded to the fact that you, you knew you had to prepare yourself for something that was just going to be really a heavy grief load. Um, what did that path, what, what was your story through this space? Well, uh, at the time of our son's diagnosis, the internet was still a little immature and there wasn't a lot of information out there. And what was out there was, was sort of fragmented and, you know, we weren't quite sure what was credible or not. But um, so I ended up going to the bookstore and buying a lot of books and ordering books um, that would teach us about the disease. Natalie didn't really want to focus on what was coming. She just wanted to focus on today. And I totally respected and understood that. Uh, me, on the other hand, you know, I bought a book called Realities in Coping with Neuromuscular Dis- Progressive Neuromuscular Disorders. And, you know, it was a book by doctors for doctors. So there was no sugarcoating. And I just remember sitting at my kitchen table late at night after everyone had been to sleep and just weeping. We all deal with grief so differently. I, I really respect your wife's approach of living in the present and not missing any moment with him while he was here. And also totally understand your approach of wanting to have some idea what to expect. And I 
like that you bring it up simply because it exemplifies how we all have a different path in grief and dealing with these things. And we each just need to find what they are. As you share your story, and I know you go around and do some speaking as well as sharing on the your website, you've got blog posts, you've got speaking, you've got ways that you connect. I'm sure you find this same thing that as you interact with people, that there are a huge variety of ways that people have to learn to deal with this sort of thing. Absolutely. Yeah. Everyone deals with it differently. And I think the trick, the key to, to dealing with grief and, and co-managing grief between you and your significant other and your family members is just respecting their process. And, you know, even to this day, after Mitch had passed, we, we just, we have different ways of grieving and we just give each other the space to do that. So one of your ways of grieving, I, I believe was creating this, this webpage or this Facebook page. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what that page is and how it helps you in the grieving process and what it does, the people you connect with? Well, I, I started the Facebook page as we discovered Mitchell's heart was in trouble, um, which was a little, about a year before Mitchell had actually passed away. We just found out, you know, things weren't going too well. And I thought, boy, I had to probably uh, start a page just to let family members keep in touch with what's going on. I'm not the type to go email everybody and presume they're interested in knowing the, every little turn and corner of our family. And so, uh, you know, that started out as a little quiet page of maybe 80 people have joined it, family members and a few close friends. And then, and then as Mitch started getting sicker, I started maybe, I was opening up a little bit of what was going on inside my mind and heart, trying to process the information that was, was going on. And, and I could see it was reaching in people and touching them. And, and at first, I'll be honest with you, I felt a little violated. People would, I didn't know would comment on, on a post and I thought, who, who are you? You know, like, what are you doing here? This is my space, you know? Um, but that didn't last very long. I mean, it, more of it was a fear of, you know, a bad character ending into our life and causing problems, you know? Uh, and so whether it's identity thieves or whatever, I mean, that, that was more of my fear than anything. But um, as I started to see the impact on others, um, I didn't worry so much about that. You know, fast forward several months, Mitch is now in, uh, in the uh, ER trying to save his life. And I started my, my, my post really turned from journal logs to like just deep reflections on what was happening. And, you know, all of a sudden we went uh, five or six levels deep in terms of uh, the thinking and processing of information and really hard realities. And that's when the floodgates started coming. You know, people were just, you know, sharing posts and commenting and, and finding meaning and purpose in their own story and journey. And, you know, by the time Mitch was home on hospice, I wasn't even paying attention to anything really anybody was saying other than I was just journaling my, my experience. And, it, you know, it became more and more tender and, and I just decided to be unflinchingly candid about the stuff that was going on. And that became my therapy, right? Uh, you know, you sit in front of a, a counselor to work through issues and really they're just trying to help you uh, like Shakespeare said, therein the patient must minister unto themselves. You know, we have to sort of work it out in our own minds. And instead of talking to a, a counselor, I just tried to become my own and study what other people had to say and process my own thoughts. So when you tell Mitchell's story and you have this term, um, Mitchell's journey, what do you tell? What kinds of stories do I tell? Um, what's the premise of it? Yeah. Is it about him? Is it about you're dealing with it? What What are the main stories that you tell about Mitchell when you um, are 
speaking and sharing his this journey. Okay, yeah. So when I sit down and start writing something, I usually have no idea what I'm about to write. I just decide I'm going to create a little space in my day and I'm feeling grief mounting and I start writing what's on my mind and heart, the feeling or the thought I have in, at the moment. And, you know, typically I'll use photographs. I'll look through my photo journals and, and pick a photo that oh, I remember this story and, and I want to document it, not really so that people remember him, but so that I won't forget my son. Because, you know, I know that, that memories are fleeting. And so it's a part journal where I sort of say what happened in the photo. But then I almost instinctively just turn back and look at what does this mean to me? What, what can I take away from this hardship so that I can face tomorrow a little stronger? So what are a couple of those favorite stories and your takeaways from them? If you'll share those with us. I bet. Uh, one of my, uh, probably the one that resonated most with people was an essay entitled, I'm okay, but I'm not okay, and that's okay. And it's a story of when my son, uh, you know, at, at, at the day of his, of his funeral, he was in, you know, his casket was open casket viewing, and, and they were about to close it. And a family member was there, he's a photographer, and took some photographs of all of this. And just before they closed the casket, he took a photo of me, you know, bending over the casket, just trying to love my son and um, tuck him in. And, um, you know, that was the last time I'd ever see him. And then, um, you know, I had to step back, they closed the casket, and I'm just having this terrible moment of like, oh, I'm never going to see this little boy again in person. And um, it was really tough. So, you know, I kind of wrote, I looked at the photo, and I kind of mentioned, I talked up to the point where they shut the casket and how I was having this typical moment. And in the moment of writing this essay, my son comes in, my oldest son comes into my office and he's like, hey, dad, are you okay? And here I'm all just falling apart. And I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah, I'm fine. I just, you know, I've got some in my eye, you know, just trying to be a man about it, whatever that means. And, uh, and then I realized in that moment, I was cheating him by pretending to be stronger than I was. And so I said to my son, you know, Ethan, um, you know, I said, I'm okay but I'm, I'm not okay. And that's okay. You know what I mean? And he just nodded his head and he had this look of relief on his face. Like, like I gave him permission to be honest about his own grief journey that we can hurt. And, and, and that's okay. Like we can be okay and not okay. And that's just totally normal. I wasn't the first to say a phrase like I've seen other people since I've written the essay, write books with that title. Um, and I'm sure that I've heard it somewhere ages ago, but, but those were my words in that moment. And, um, you know, that was an essay that had, you know, millions of people have read it and shared it and, and I posted it in various places and it just had a deep resonance with people because I think a lot of people aren't sure if it's okay to be broken. And I think that's the pervasive message with Mitchell's journey is that it's okay to be broken and here are all the many ways we can break ourselves, break others and be broken ourselves, you know, and, and how do we deal with that and how do we put our broken pieces back together? Um, just last night I posted this story called The Truth About Trauma. And, uh, you know, getting a response, Facebook's changed their algorithms, which ruins its reach like it used to have. But, uh, you know, this story was all about the funeral, um, the funeral home employees that had picked our son up to take him to the funeral home and prepare his body. They had, I took a photo of them rolling him out our front door and I reflected on, you know, that was the same door that my little boy would, you know, um, come home from school in and, and, you know, his friend would knock on the door. That's the door. Mitch would stand up at Halloween and hand out candy to kids and just loved it. 
And all of a sudden I'm seeing this horrific scene of my son being rolled out. And um, that resonated. And I talked about the layers of, of grief and what grief is really what I call prolonged trauma. You know, it's it's just, and it lasts forever. It lasts so long. It isn't the funeral and, and death that's hard. That stuff's hard, but it's not near as hard as is the years that follow. And I'm, a lot of people are currently responding saying, you know, that's exactly how I feel. So in a way, the, those stories tend to surface what people are thinking, but they don't know how to quite say. So I wanna make one more comment. Not every story is saturated with death and sorrow. I'll talk about other aspects that are just sheerly gleeful, you know? How do I um, make moments matter with my family members? And how do I create a life of significance? Because I think too often, um, we either get so numbed out by life and its distractions or by grief and other things that we just, we're, we stop living. And so I, I, I'm trying to get myself to remember and hopefully others that we can live. Um, it's important to, to live a life and not wait until the end to, to really appreciate all that we've got. Absolutely. You know, um, two comments. The first is how interesting it is that it feels like we all need permission to have messy lives like like we come and we expect life to turn out as we expect and then once it doesn't depending on what it is you know there's shame or there's grief or there's things we want to hide and when somebody says or does something that acknowledges it's okay to not be okay it's okay to feel broken it's okay that life is messy then it's this huge relief and people will gravitate and cling to that like a, a lifeboat of, okay, I, I'm okay. And it's really important that we share these stories. One of the podcasts that has been really well loved on Love Your Story is the one that's titled Life is Messy and That's Okay. And it does this, it hits that same chord that you're talking about. So I think it, it's huge for people just to have that, to be given that permission. They don't need it, of course, but we don't realize what a universal thing is until we realize what a universal thing that mess is, you know? Totally. I, I had a colleague once tell me, he says, you know, there's two people in life. There are those that are broken and those that deny it, basically. <laughs> right. <laughs> those that don't yet realize. <laughs> yeah. And I love that. It was a very true uh, observation. And, you know, I love broken people. And I love people that admit their brokenness because they're so immediately relatable. And those that pretend, I, you know, they probably show a little more brokenness than, than they realize. And, and I just, uh, I love it when people unmask because that's when we start making real progress personally and everywhere. Well, and that's when we make the real connection, that vulnerability of our real human experience filled with the griefs and the disappointments and the struggle and the, the falling down and the standing back up, that's when we relate to one another because everybody does it in their own way. So the second thing I wanted to come back to or have you expound upon was this idea of living forward, this idea that of posts that you make and ideas that you are a proponent of regarding being present with the people that are here and loving them and taking every opportunity to create these beautiful things because we don't know how many moments we have left with the people we love. Can you speak to that? 
Well, yeah, and you know, although I'll often talk about the importance of being present in the moment, I also recognize that me being human also struggle with that to this day. It's so easy to get wrapped up in things and, and get caught up in routines and ruts that we just kind of, we numb out and we stop really living. And, uh, and so, yeah, I, I feel strongly that if we can find ways to break out of those, those routines in life, and create moments that matter, then, then I think everybody's life's enriched. And some people pull from some of the stories ideas that they can do to, to increase their engagement, but you know, it's, it's a struggle. And I wouldn't pretend that, you know, I've got that figured out and mastered. I mean, it's some days you come home from work and you're still struggling with stuff at work and you, it's hard to be home when you're home. Do you know what I mean? So how do you do it? Do you have some go-to tools that remind you to be present and create important moments right now? Well, I think it's a function of mindfulness. I mean, you really just have to keep it top of mind, um, you know, and, and, and keep yourself in checks and balances. And, and oftentimes at the beginning of the week, I look for, I plan out my week and say, what am I going to do that matters this week? What connections do I want to enrich with my family member, uh, whether it's my sons or my daughter or my wife? Um, and we also call each other out. You know, if, if, if I'm my head's in the clouds, my kids will say, dad, stop it. You know, hello, I'm here, you know, and they do it in a cute, funny way, but it gets to the point of, you know, we, we can remind each other gently that it's important to, to put the phone down or to, you know, put work aside and really focus on, on the, the, the opportunity, but you have to be, it has to be. I like the idea of us helping each other in our spaces, being that reminder. One of the things that I am a proponent of, and this was early on in my 20s, that there was this discussion or aha moment. And it was about creating relationships with people, particularly with a significant other, somebody that played a really important point in your life and and how often the, you know, life just gets in the way and you're doing things. And, you know, so many, so often what pushes people apart in a primary relationship is something along the lines of neglect or not getting attention or not having date time and, you know, that type of thing. And the idea or the, yeah, I guess it's just the idea. The idea that came up was if we just spent 15 minutes every day thinking of that other person, something that we could do for them, being creative and just taking the time, really, the time to think about what we could do for that other person that day, 15 minutes is all. And maybe you can think of it in five minutes, but just that little bit of time. And in a 24-hour time slot, that's nothing. And when it's your most important relationship, how can you not feel good about investing that that tiny percentage of your day into what can I do for them or how can I connect with them or how can I build on that? And it's just a, a tool that if, gosh, if you worked into your routine would be really powerful and you could adjust that for whatever your life looks like. But that's one of those techniques for just being present and aware and investing and building the relationships in front of you. Yeah, and, and I think there have been several essays in the past that I've posted that, that deal with that issue that, you know, a small investment today will pay dividends for a lifetime. And and it is, you know, it's it's not just the relationship, the contemporary relationship, but it's the it's locking down memories that are really treasures that you'll that'll bless your life for the, your entire life if you'll just spend the time now to be mindful and in the moment. Oh, I love that. I really, really like that. So 
It's been said that the hardest part of losing someone isn't having to say goodbye, but having to learn to live without them. Always trying to feel that void, the emptiness left inside you when they go. What do you think of that thought? Totally agree. Yeah, I mean, goodbye is hard. Not, not uh, Truly, it is hard. But it is, you, you become an emotional, spiritual uh, amputee. And that part of you is no longer part of you. And you have to just learn how to live without that um, emotional arm or leg or whatever that person meant to you. And that's that's tough. Yeah, that, that is the hardest part, no doubt. So if people want to follow your essays and reach out to you, how are the ways that they can do that? They can uh, subscribe to the Mitchell's Journey Facebook page. I have a website, mitchellsjourney.org, where there's a lot more resources and a much more dynamic environment there that they can subscribe to, you know, the, the essays and get notifications when they, when they are posted. How long do you think that you will keep this going? And is the website and the Facebook page part of what you do to, to deal with your grief? Um, yes. My, Mitchell's Journey, the, the Facebook page, the website, and my foundation, Mitchell's Journey Foundation, is really a central part of my grieving process. And uh, how long it will last will be as long as it, as it helps people. I don't. I don't see an end. Uh, maybe, perhaps, one day it, it may, but I, I. I don't see it right now. I, I just want to more memories to share and feelings to process, and I think it can help people along the way. So, tell me about Mitchell's Foundation. I'm not familiar with that. Okay, so Mitchell's Journey Foundation is something we started uh, about a year and a half after our son passed away. And we really didn't want to be another one of those, you know, bereaved families that starts a foundation that fizzles away quickly or, or whatever. We just, but, but you know, we, we saw a clear and present need to serve um, not only the community that my son was a part of with Duchenne muscular dystrophy, we began to see that there was a vast opportunity to help many people whatever their situation was. And so Mitchell's journey, if you think about it from a, a, a like a, a spectrum, on the one hand, we create inspiring stories that help people process their own journeys in life. And that's a vast majority of what we do. We also provide tools that empower family members to make moments matter, to strengthen relationships, to develop skills and insights and a profound sense of hope. So these empowering tools we create. We also raise awareness through our outreach programs. Um, and I, that was actually a natural consequence of my post, also create awareness of DMD. We have some community programs that are local that help families with DMD. Uh, we have like events, like a, a movie night every December. We invite these DMD kids to come in and just feel really special that night, invite their friends to see a movie um, and other programs, runs and such. And then lastly, we serve uh, local families that where certain programs don't meet their needs, if they need a bathroom renovation to help fix, uh, you know, to make space for a wheelchair, if they need a wheelchair ramp, you know, we partner with uh, AGC of Utah, Associated General Contractors of Utah, and they've been awesome to help us build ramps for families over the years. You know, those are the, the spaces that we try to fill. Um, the vast majority of to, to the general public, it doesn't really have much to do with DMD, but we'll never forget and try to serve the families who are affected by the same disease our son has. Wow, you are doing so much. Nice job. Um, how are you doing with your grief at this point? How long has it been since it's been five years, right? Since he passed? 
Yep, it's been five years. How are you doing? I think on balance, uh, better than I've ever been in the past. Um, I used to feel like my lungs, like I had the flu for the first three years because I would weep every single day. And my diaphragm was literally fatigued. And, uh, you know, about year three, I, I didn't weep every day. I wept a couple of times a month and, or a week. I mean, uh, nowadays, you know, there have some pretty profound moments a couple of times a month. But for the most part, I'm able to look back on those moments now with a deep affection, a little sorrow, but a lot of understanding. And I think that's where I'm at right now. But again, maybe tonight I'll, I'll freak out and cry a lot. The process is messy, isn't it? Yes, and it's not linear. And deeply personal. Yeah. Thank you for being here today. Do you have any parting thoughts or stories or advice, something you'd like to share as we close up? Well, I think the thing I just want to tell people that hurt is that, you know, it's a, I, I've written many times on some of my posts that, you, you know, after all that's said and done, the journey of grief is traveled by one. And nobody, nobody can carry that grief for us. But we can walk together and maybe not feel so alone. But at the end of the day, it's a lonely journey. And, uh, and I hope that those that hear Mitchell's journey and read Mitchell's journey find some solace and peace and able to pick up their own broken pieces and put them together. I love broken people. We're all broken. And I'm just, I just want to help. Thank you. You know, one of the things that I want to say about, quote, broken people is that I'm one of those broken people. We all are. We are all those broken people. But the thing for those that stand back up, for those who keep learning and trying and doing, we end up with people like you who are engaged in the arena, who are creating good, who are taking something that's difficult and finding the meaning and purpose behind it, creating something bigger than what it could have been and becoming something bigger than what you would have been without it. And that's the beauty of the the pathway for all of us along this broken and messy road because it's us becoming, it's just us becoming beautiful. Broken people are beautiful people when they stand up and cre- keep trying to understand and find meaning and learn from where they've been. Love that. That's beautiful. Thank you for being here today. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you sharing your story. Mother Teresa said, it's not about how much we give, it's how much love we put into giving. My discussion with Chris today is very much about love and giving and grief and dealing with this process of messy living. But one of those things that he is really an exemplar of is is giving. When people are down in the arena and they choose to stand back up and what they take with them is something that in their process, they are also building and giving. These are the beautiful, beautiful spaces that personally, I want to applaud and that I stand in awe of and that I am so impressed with us as we, as people learn and grow and create something better out of our hurtful spaces, how much love we put into our giving. And oftentimes that love comes from a space of of empathy, of understanding what it means to be down and wanting to help other people go through those difficult spaces that we know we all have to go through. 
that's where I come from with the Love Your Story podcast, not wanting others who don't love their story to have to recreate the wheel, but instead can use my reframing processes or my discussions and awareness on how to create the stories they want moving forward, how to look inside their own heads at the negative stories that are going on and reframe those into a space of positivity and support for themselves. All of these things are ways that we move forward and create goodness. And I applaud Chris for what he's doing with Mitchell's journey and send my love and support and energy out to him on his journey. Call to action this week. Spend time with the people you love. Really, spend time that looking into the eye, that belly laughing time with them. Don't waste a moment because you don't know how many you have. And if you like this podcast, I would appreciate you showing your appreciation for the show by leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcast. And also remember the website, loveyourstorypodcast.com is always available for you. That has all the episodes, the show notes, and the show notes for Chris and the Mitchell's Journey Foundation and all of his links, ways to contact him will be there on the website. Um, Tools like the 21 Challenges, 21 Life Connection Challenges for creating your best life story on purpose. All of that's there. And I will see you next week for the next episode of the Love Your Story podcast. Have fun creating your life story on purpose.